Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 477 of the Juice Box Podcast. On today's show, I'll be talking with Marina Nitsu. Among other things, Marina is the former senior advisor to the U.S. Chief Technology Officer at the White House. She was the Chief Technology Officer and Senior Advisor to the Secretary at the Department of Veterans Affairs. She is passionate about improving America's child welfare system, the developer of Task Tackler, and she has type 1 diabetes. I quickly realized how much I love Marina as we were talking, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation as well. Please remember while you're listening that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise, Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. At the end of this episode, I'm going to tell you the pot roast story. If after this conversation ends, you're interested, you can learn more about Marina at tasktackler.com or marinanitsu.com. Links in the show notes. This show is sponsored today by the glucagon that my daughter carries, Gvoke Hypopen. Find out more at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juicebox. To learn more about the blood glucose meter that my daughter carries, and let me tell you something, it is the most accurate blood glucose meter I've ever seen in person, and that's no BS. Go to contournext.com forward slash juicebox and learn about the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. Uh, hey, Scott, I'm Marina, and it's so nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. I have to say, first of all, when I reached out to you, it was because people asked me to, and that I guess they had heard you somewhere else. They were like, you have to get this person on the podcast. I was like, okay, so now this is me sheepishly sending an email like or a, t- a message somewhere. I'm like, hey, would you like to come on the podcast? And you're like, I know the podcast. I was like, ooh. So that put me in a good feeling in my chest. I felt puffed up a little, but then you big timed me when you sent me your calendar. I was like, oh, she knows how to do this because <laughs> usually I'm the one who sends out calendar links. I was like, you figure out how to work around my schedule. And you were like, here, here's my schedule. Figure out where it fits. I was like, yeah, she knows what she's doing. <laughs> well, but then we had the double Zoom links. So, but, but we navigated that successfully. Yeah. So go team. Look at us. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were able to create two Zoom links and then choose one. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. <laughs> These are pandemic skills. These are key pandemic skills. Well, I I have to tell you that prior to COVID, I was using Zoom and loving it. And I was in a panic when everybody found out about it. I thought, oh, are they going to ruin my thing? Uh, But luckily that didn't happen. Yeah, it seems like they just strengthened it. The one thing Zoom is missing is a popcorn feature. I don't know how many large group meetings you're on, but when they're like, oh, just pass it to the next person. Like, then you spend the whole time being like, there's 35 people here. How am I supposed to keep track of who's gone and who hasn't? Oh, no kidding. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I only ever do it one-on-one or sometimes, you know, two people at a time. But yeah, I only use it like this and for audio. But it's been terrific for me. That's not the point of any of this. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I I guess let me just start by asking how old you were when you were diagnosed with type 1. I was nine years old in 1994. 94, 2004, 14, 24, minus 3. 21 years ago? 
26 years ago. Oh my God. I'm never going to get this stuff right. Okay. <laughs> did I subtract okay. where I, I should have added? Oh, I let's not, let's not take time to figure out what I did wrong. 26 years ago, you were nine years old. Now I can do this. That makes you 35. Yeah. Uh, see, now you're impressed right now. You're like, how do I get out of this? <laughs> no, 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 Um, so, so you're nine years old, a long time ago. Are you regular in MPH? Uh, yes. And I think like plenty, is that maybe yeah. what it was called then? Um, regular NPH and then some law, even longer acting when you'd mix all three. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Who managed that for you? Uh, primarily me from the beginning. Um, I had a care team that was really kind of empowered about getting the kiddos uh, responsible for their own diabetes care, which in retrospect, I appreciate a lot. No kidding. So, but in, in fairness and for clarity for people who are more newly diagnosed now and here in 2021, you were just kind of like, what were you doing? Drawing up some insulin and shooting it like a couple times a day? Yeah, we, we had a lot of structure then. So you test at certain times and you had to have a strict number of carbohydrates per meal at a certain time. And so my care team would then adjust that accordingly. So I was in charge of counting the number of carbs to get to my set number, which I want to say was something like 30 at lunch and then having my three o'clock snack of 15 grams of carbs. Um, And yes, you draw up the insulin and take it, but it was a very structured day. Uh, The goal being that by the time you checked with your meter, which at that time took like 45 seconds to give you a reading Mm -hmm. uh, with a giant drop of blood, um, the goal was for you to be like back in range by the next meal, but you really had no insight into kind of what you were doing in between meals. So you drew up a predetermined amount of insulin, injected it, and then were sure to eat a certain amount of carbs at certain times and then hacked into yourself at the end of the day to make sure you were still alive with one blood test. And yes. You, wow. That's something. Do you look back on that and think uh, that seems really primitive or was it or what is your perspective of it since you lived through it? Uh, I think more primitive seemed later. So when I was like nine, 10, it made sense to me, given the tools that we had, that checking blood sugar at certain meals and having, and following the structure made sense. What seemed more primitive was like teenage years when there's like a pump and then you're kind of left to navigate the, like any number of carbs and any amount of, you know, fat with the carbs, which I don't even think was a thing that was conceived of when I was a teenager around like, you know, you need a longer bolus for pizza than you would for something fast acting. Yeah. Um, I think that was, that seemed a little bit crazier to me relative to my like overall time with diabetes. So that's interesting for people to hear because in the beginning, when the outcomes aren't really well tracked, right. Then if you set up rules and follow the rules, it feels like you're doing everything perfectly. Is that right? Right. And then, then you start getting more insight but the tools aren't quite there yet. And then it seems kind of harried and, and senseless. Yeah. It felt like if, if I were looking back with 2020 vision, having a pump and that level of freedom without a CGM, I think is probably what felt like more haphazard looking back on it. Because like, I remember very clearly making, uh, an ex- I guess it wasn't Excel. Was Excel even around then? <laughs> like a chart for my endocrine team when I was like 11 or 12, I wanted to stop taking a shot at lunch at school. Right. And so I made like a very detailed chart showing like my average numbers <laughs> at three o'clock uh, that were something like 125 or something. And I was arguing that was close enough to 120 that I should be able to skip my lunch shot. Um, I don't think there was no, not that level of data and structure when I was a teenager because it, you were, I was eating whenever, whatever, 
Um, and then there was not that sort of consistent data to work back from. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I think about it that way. What's what was the measure of success then? Like not passing out? Uh, when I was first like nine through like up till the teenage years, I think the measure of success, it was definitely still a one C and that was back, you know, they had to do it like a blood draw and you wait like days for them to just call you back with it. But my team then like really tracked your blood sugar log, which was this little, like many, I don't know that everybody uses them today, but it was like a packet of paper that you'd carry around with you with your meter and you'd write in each time and the number that you were. And the goal then was like all of your numbers at your key testing points should be under 120, but obviously not low. Right. When, if that happened, how did that translate A1C? Do you remember? I don't. That's a really good question. I'm interested, but how much of it was um, well-meaning and how much of it actually worked out? You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're totally right. I don't remember. I don't really remember thinking about A1C much until I was a teenager. I do remember thinking a lot about... um, my individual numbers in the glucose log. But then I like if, if a number say was starting to creep up above 120, I understood that then there were kind of two things that you input. You either increased one of your three insulins right earlier in the day, or you would adjust your like carb count. Yeah. Um, so it felt like maybe there was simpler math then. <laughs> <laughs> the um, pumping nowadays versus when you first got a pump, is it a, a fairly similar experience? Like, nuts and bolts wise has anything really changed very much uh you know i got my first pump in 1996 and i've been pumping ever since um the size of it i don't know that's changed very much i I was on a medtronic pump for forever Mm -hmm. um i've only switched to omnipod in the last year um and so the pump size seemed the same to me although maybe if you held mine up from 20 years ago i would feel differently but the um insertion definitely like got way better yeah. i mean it used to be uh, a little bit like jamming a one and a half inch thumbtack into yourself yeah. um and i still have scar tissue honestly from my teenage years that i do not have like now as an adult so i think they've improved that a lot is that physical or emotional that scar tissue <laughs> <laughs> a little of both. Both. Uh, but I meant physical. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. Wow. That's really crazy. Okay. So, so you're, listen, unless you're just really good at representing yourself online, you seem like a fairly accomplished person for your age. Uh, so, or you're an amazing writer. We'll find out in a second. Uh, but I think it's the former. And so what was your mindset coming through high school and graduating thinking, I'm assuming thinking about college, did you know what you wanted to do? I did, but I didn't know that there was a word for it. So I loved, even from the time I was very, very young, loved business process engineering. I loved seeing a problem and like solving it. Have you ever done those logic puzzles? You can buy them kind of in the airport and it's like Susie sitting next to Bob, but like isn't sitting next to Susie. And then you have to put the X's and O's. That's when Scott puts the puzzle down. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I upset to this day, like I obsessively love those, those logic puzzles. Okay. And so I wanted to be, and, and when I was in high school, I referred to it as being an efficiency consultant. Um, and I went on to call myself an efficiency consultant for a little period of time. I was the only Google result for efficiency consultant. And I know that because, um, if you know, like the dummies books series, like mm-hmm knitting for dummies, whatever for dummies, I got reached out to by them to write business efficiency for dummies. And the pitch literally said like they were Googling the term business efficiency and I was the number one search result. Uh, now, today, that is definitely not true. That is how I got on the Katie Kirk show. Because they were looking for a stay-at-home dad 
near New York and they Googled stay at home dad, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and my blog popped up. So I got to be on television. <laughs> that is amazing. People under still to this day underestimate SEO. I think you gotta you gotta find your keyword. Not me. I, I love SEO. I uh, it's it's a large portion of the reason for the popularity of the podcast, and um, you have to put effort into it, and it's not easy, and it's weird to understand. And I and I I um I'm proud of myself. I do not write to SEO. Like I don't sit down and say I'm going to say something in writing now that I know will drive people because of the words I use. I do it like I I think if my content draws, then it draws. And if it mm-hmm. does, if it doesn't, it doesn't. So, but yeah, that that's, I, I'll never forget, like turning to the producer and being like, how did you find me? And she's like, oh, I just Googled these words. You're the only one that came up. I was like, oh, well then let's get that's me to right. makeup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A very odd uh, experience, but I, but I hear you. So you were calling yourself something based on your, now let me ask you and try to be honest if you can love yeah. of the process or strange baked in type a need i tell you you can't see me i am literally drinking out of a mug that says type a on it (laughs) Uh, so i definitely i'm an intj to the core Mm. which is like the myers breaks most associated with being type a so part of it is definitely my personality but i think maybe if it is your personality then that's the work that you're drawn towards and you get the most joy out of yeah no, I agree. I think it, it it ends up being what your my wife is incredibly good at what she does, and you and uh, she probably have very similar personalities. And it's the kind of work that people who don't feel that way about precision and getting things accomplished, getting them accomplished correctly, like that sort of stuff. If you watched if one of those people watched my wife work for fifteen minutes, you'd you'd think to yourself like, oh. I would do anything but this, like, please get me away from this, but she loves it. And she's amazing at it. And I imagine this is similar for you. So uh, yeah, I describe myself as, as someone who loves lists and finds comfort in lists. Like if I'm feeling stressed out, I will resolve that by making a list. I know many other people, including my very beloved husband, who the uh, list makes him more stressed. Right. And so it's just acknowledging that we all have different work styles. Can I ask you a question before we get too deep into this? Sure. <laughs> do you mind? Do you mind being like a therapist for me for a second? Absolutely. If I said, let's pretend you and I were married for a second and you saw that I have no desire to follow a list. I keep one because I'm an adult and I have things to do. But if the 10th thing on the list suddenly becomes the most important thing to me, I'll abandon the first thing on the list and then do the 10th thing on the list. Like I'm very flexible about how I handle my days that bleed into my weeks that bleed into my months. Is that maddening to you or do you just see that as a style? I just see that as a style and it's a style that you can accommodate. Um, like for example, even though I'm very type A, I also uh procrastinate and recognize that about myself. I find ways to be the most productive in my procrastination. For example, I've learned that if I see tasks that are due in two days, I'm more likely to do those than I am to do the tasks that's due tomorrow. What you think about it is a tricky way to keep those tasks that are due in two days from ever becoming overdue, right? Because mm-hmm. they're still getting done ahead of ahead of time. So finding like tricks about the way that you work that way, I would, and then exploiting them is what I would recommend. No kidding. Do you teach people how to do that, or is that just something you do for yourself? Uh, I am increasingly. Uh, I have a task app that I built for myself ten years ago called Task Tackler, um, and I'm just now about to like make it available for other people to use. 
And so it may be a platform that I can, it's, it's built for the way that my brain works, acknowledging that most other brains don't work this way. But if there's like a thousand other brains that work the way that mine does, and those people can't program their own task gaps, yeah. I hope to bring them some uh, relief. I would imagine that some people listening think that I set that question up knowing what you're going to answer, but that would not be the truth. So I just Googled now to find out. And now you're thinking, oh my God, you didn't even read like the first page of my website, probably. I apologize. I like not knowing too much about the people I'm about to talk to. Sure. Um, yeah. That totally makes sense. I, yeah. I am not judging in the least. Thank you. Well, if you want to judge, just say it out loud so everybody can hear it. That's fine. Um, yeah. Wow. So you're going to make this like a like a public thing, optimize your mood, add relevant task details. Cool. I'm sure there will it have applications outside of business? Is it just everyday life? What will it do? It's just everyday life. I mean, I literally like I have um, tasks related to diabetes in it. I have tasks related to being a good godmother. Like it really oh. um, is pretty helpful. You can use it for whatever's going on. Nice. Task. Is it always going to be tasktackler.com? Yes. Well, pres- I, well, I mean, presumably. Yeah, unless you get crazy and you're like, well, you just said SEO is important. You're not going to start changing now. You're okay. Uh, <laughs> I've called it that for 10 years. So I'm, it's, it's, uh, I'm a little wet to it. SEO could persuade me to call it something else, but at the moment, <laughs> I own I, the dot com. So. I have a, I have one episode of this podcast that was driven by SEO. And then it didn't end up going anything like I thought it was going to go. Can you tell me what that what that I would, said was? I would be happy to. I'm now telling everybody at the same time. So um, it's the one where I had the paramedic on to talk about uh, um, how they handle emergency situ- situations with people with type 1. And I did that because type 1 diabetes tattoos is an incredibly powerful SEO search term. So everyone does it. So I get this, I get this person on and like I just said, I don't plan ahead. So I tell her what she's going to do and she's excited to do it. She comes on and I ask my question, which I will admit I thought was a leading question about like, Hey, where's the best place to put your type one diabetes tattoo so that, you know, emergency medical people see it. She goes, I don't recommend those. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) So, (laughs) So we ended up having an amazing conversation and she explained everything to me. But um, in her professional opinion, if you want people to know you have type 1 diabetes, getting a tattoo of it is the least effective way to do it. And I said, well, what if you put it right on your wrist or on your arm? She goes, no. She goes, I don't know what you think. I'm not looking at your tattoos while I'm trying to put an IV in you. And I was like, oh. And then she explained the whole job. And I was like, that makes a ton of sense. Not what I expected for my SEO, like my big SEO campaign. But uh, it ended up being a really amazing interview. Uh, well, before you get that type one tattoo, it seems to me that that podcast is what you would actually want to land on if you're researching them and if they're not effective and you're tattooing yourself. I agree. I also think it probably pissed everyone off that already had one. Like I even said, like, what about your chest? Like, what about here? She's like, so she started saying like, there are some places that might be a little better, but she would not guarantee it. She goes, we're ripping your clothes off sometimes and putting in lines. And she goes, we're not, we're not reading your tattoos. And I was like, oh, wow. She's like a necklace or a bracelet. I think bracelet was the best. And then maybe a necklace um, with a medallion on it. But yeah, bracelet was the best, if I recall. Anyway, um, it, it it did not go anywhere near. See, the one time I tried to do something like really pointed, it just, I was like, ah, forget it. Um, I think I've heard of people that tried to get do not resuscitate tattoos and they're ignored. And then they, they wake, like, up. wake up. Yeah. yeah. That's not a legally binding contract, I don't think. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> Can you imagine you're just in a medic? You're like, oh, wait, nope. This person has a tattoo, says they don't want to be saved. I guess we'll leave now. Like, I mean, how would that work? You know? Um, 
Okay, so what do you end up going to college for? Uh, political science, um, which you might think was connected to my later working in the federal government, but they had absolutely nothing to do with one another. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> let's find out why that is. So you, you you do an undergrad in political science. Is that all you did or did you do um, any continuing education after that? Um, I actually did not finish college because I was too busy working in my company making efficiency applications. Wow. Well, okay. So you started a company while you're in school? I actually started it when I was uh, 12. Um, <laughs> making I made professional websites for different uh, soap opera celebrities. And then I went on to build like websites for like family, friends, companies, and things like that. And by the time I was in college, I was getting hired by actual company. It was the right timing, right? It was like mm -hmm. just when the, the World Wide Web was coming out and lots of people didn't have any website at all. They maybe had like an AOL keyword. And so I was, it was really nice timing where they were uh, willing to hire anyone to come and build their application. And then I got to take my logic skills, right? Where I would watch their current process and their current dot matrix printer and their AS400 and their chalkboard or whatever they had going on and then build an application that helped their business work better. Hmm. Anybody from General Hospital? Uh, yes. General Hospital was my favorite soap opera. And Ned and Alexis, the couple, uh, was my first website. No kidding. Do you know there's yeah. there was a um, a character named after my daughter on General Hospital because of this podcast? I did not know that. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to like rightly. So, well, I get a um, a message one day from a woman who says, that um that you know the podcast is helping her. I think she has questions or something. We end up on the phone, we're chatting. I'm like cleaning the house, and you basically, if you're talking to me on the phone, I'm cleaning the house. And um and she's going on and on, and I bring up that I wrote a book, and I felt so silly later because she's like, oh, I'm a you know I'm a writer too, but she never really says like in what like capacity. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of bump into each other again, like online. And I, I set her up to be on the podcast and it turns out I'm trying to pull it up so that I can find it. Exactly. Um, she's the character's name is Arden. Um, so, General Hospital? so the character's name will be like, it's like, she was like a district attorney. So it was like ADA Arden. Oh. And, um, and the, and the, the woman's name was Kate Hall. I'm looking it up now. This happened back in like 2019. So I have like a little clip on my website of, of the actors like using my daughter's name and in, in a scene and everything. But um, it turns out that Kate Hall's like, you know, she's not just a writer. She's like the head writer of general hospital. <laughs> so that is an awesome yeah. story. Wow. Arden was, probably doesn't appreciate like how cool it is. I mean, she, she smiled and she was like, that's really nice. And then she, <laughs> she should, I think she showed a friend and then she was sort of done with it, but it was, uh, it, it was really, I thought it was, I thought it was just an amazing um, indication of the show, honestly, like the, the, the podcast had helped somebody so much that, you know, that they felt compelled or, you know, desirous of doing something nice like that. I just thought it was really sweet. I know, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I grew up when I was younger coming home from school and watching general hospital with my mom in the afternoon. So, um, I know all about Luke and Laura and a lot of other things that I'm not embarrassed to say. But, uh, yeah, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I still watch it. I don't. I'm not as religious uh, these days, but I still. I still keep. Tabs. I hear you. But you're 12 years old making websites for people, and what does that lead you to? Like after you kind of like drain that well dry, where what where, where do you go next? Gvoke Hypopen has no visible needle and is the first pre-mixed auto-injector of glucagon for very low blood sugar in adults and kids with diabetes, ages two and above. 
Not only is GVOC HypoPen simple to administer, but it's simple to learn more about. All you have to do is go to gvocglucagon.com forward slash juice box. GVOC shouldn't be used in patients with insulinoma or pheochromocytoma. Visit gvocglucagon.com slash risk. Pull out your blood glucose meter, look at it, and then question it. Is this the best blood glucose meter you could be using? You're paying for it, right? You're paying for the test strips. You're paying for the meter. There it is. Are you paying for the best? Are you paying for what works well? Does it add something to your life or is it taking something away and you don't even know? Now, I don't know what blood glucose meter you're using right now, but you should be looking into the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. Something that gives you such important information shouldn't be an afterthought. Make a purposeful, make a purposeful decision to carry a great blood glucose meter. The Contour Next One has second chance test strips, so there's no wasting of strips should you touch the blood but not get quite enough. You can just go back in with the Contour Next One and try again without impacting the quality or accuracy of your blood sugar test. That alone is a reason to do it. But if you need more, let me tell you this. The Contour Next One has a bright light for viewing at night. It's got a bright screen that is easy to read. It has a compatible iPhone or Android app if you would like to use it. And if you don't want to use the app to collect your data, you don't have to. It's full of choice. Contournext.com forward slash juice box. Head over and take a look. There's a test strip savings program. You might be eligible for that. Some of you may be eligible for a free meter. There's only one way to find out. You go to contournext.com forward slash juice box. Question what you're doing. Make good decisions. Make purposeful decisions. Don't just, no, no, I'm not going to, I almost ruined the pot roast story, but I'm not going to. You have to wait till the end. I would say rather than like one well going dry, like they sort of kind of worked in parallel. So for example, it's websites, but then like I wanted to make soap opera games like Hangman or trivia games and things. So I had to learn how to program to make those games online. And once I had that skill, then, you know, when you run into the local business or a friend's parent or whoever maybe needs a website, then I can do that. And then I could do more than just the website, but build like applications that actually work for their company too. And you still have this skill. Like if I told you that the episode that went up the other day was about how to count fat um, and to bolus for fat, and that there's an actual uh, mathematical equation that goes with it. If I said to you, here's this equation, can you turn this into an online app? Like, could you do something like that? Absolutely. Let yeah. me know if you need it. Yes. Are you serious? That's am- I uh-huh. wasn't asking. I was just amazed that you could do something like that. Like that was a, like an idea I had while I was talking to the person and I, um, and I thought, well, that would be amazing because then instead of this kind of difficult math that you have to do around this, this, these fat calories, um, you could just put in a couple of numbers and be done. It could tell you like this many units over this many hours and that would be it. And I was like, that seems, I mean, genius. you, you loop, right? Or Arden loops? Arden does. Yeah. 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 There's an app, FPU mod of loop that you can put in fat and it will change your loop calculation. No kidding. Yeah, I don't even. I pay very little. I I shouldn't say this, but I don't pay much attention to outside of my 
out of outside of my bubble, I guess. I, I say this on the podcast once in a while, but I'm incredibly concerned about uh, appearing to steal anyone's idea. So I don't like to know anybody's ideas. Um, <laughs> and I also think it drives me towards being more differently innovative about diabetes, if that makes sense or not. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So you, you just keep growing basically. Like you're, you're a person who learns how to do a thing, which leads them to another thing that leads them to another thing. And it just kept going and going. So, but you still went to college, but I, how does, how does something become so successful that you're like, I don't need to finish college? Uh, well, I think it's, for me, it was a gradual thing. It was like, I'm just, I'm so busy. I can't like meaningfully do college and complete my paying work. And my paying work seems pretty important. So I'm going to just take, you know, one semester off. And then it's like, I'll just, I'll go back next semester. And then I moved to a different state. And then I was like, oh, I'll go back, you know, next year. And then it just kind of keeps piling on. So your parents, um, so far it has not held me back in any way. So I'm not wildly persuaded to go back. Yeah. I mean, I don't listen. It doesn't matter to me. I, um, I took one college credit ever in my life and I have the most popular diabetes podcast on the planet. So I'm okay. But, um, but at the same, I'm okay. You're okay. That's exactly. Uh, the, The only thing I would say that through my thirties, my, maybe my late 30s, early 40s, I did have that like feeling of like, I really should have gone to college. And I didn't know why I felt that way other than it felt like I let myself down or something like that. Um, meanwhile, it d- didn't seem to matter for me. But did you have living parents that you had to tell you were not going to college anymore? Uh I, it wasn't really a conversation. I don't oh, know. Nobody, Nobody's upset with me. Nice. Is this? Do you think this is based on a lifetime of like she's always doing the right thing? She'll be fine. Yes, I think that that's probably like I've I've always been uh, a little bit outside the box, but um, effectively so, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, I've also, with the exception of working in the federal government, never had like a real job. I've always worked for myself, uh, and so I am pretty comfortable doing that. And I think other people are just used to me kind of going my own way. Yeah, I, if I had to work for people again, I I would be I would make me cry I would cry <laughs> I really would um I very much like being able to set my own pace and and um and I liked having I like being able to have ideas that I know if I went into a room and tried to discuss with four people that they'd shoot it down and that I just get to go I'm going to do that anyway I I like that a lot actually um okay so you're on your way you're doing a thing you end, you just said you ended up working for the federal government at one point what were you doing there yeah, um, I was a senior advisor on technology uh, to President Obama in the White House, and then I was the chief technology officer for the Department of Veterans Affairs for five years after that. What does the Veterans Affairs job consist of? What are you trying to accomplish? I was told on my first day of work that my job description was to redefine the art of the possible of how America honors and serves its veterans. Uh, so, you know, no biggie. <laughs> um, but in, in practice, a lot of my time over those years was about bringing, um, new technology talent into the VA, but really primarily shining a light on the experiences of real veterans going out and sitting with veterans that were experiencing homelessness who needed VA healthcare, but couldn't enroll and understanding like what were the specific obstacles they were facing and how could we, as the VA remove those obstacles? Did you come to any conclusions in your time there? Uh, quite a few. And actually, it's kind of cool. Uh, the VA right now is being lauded as really effectively delivering vaccines to veterans and their caregivers. When I was there, there actually wasn't a database of veterans. That might sound crazy. There were 64 different ones. Um, and so we set out a course and a vision of like, what would it be like? Imagine if a veteran could update their address in one place and like the VA knew about it. 
And uh, so it's pretty cool to see the groundwork that we laid in 2013 now mean that in the time of a national pandemic, the VA can really effectively deploy and serve. How much of the how much of bureaucracy gets built because people come and go and have new ideas and instead of either working with what they have or starting fresh with something, they end up just building a sunroom on the side of it and keep going. Like, is that is that how it gets confusing like that? Oh, I think it's a ton of it. I used to keep a chart on my wall in the office of like people's beliefs when they first came in from the private sector and joined my team relative to their beliefs in six months. And I think part of it is coming in and not understanding what was there before. But I think part of it is also coming in with a belief that like your new thing can be exempt from the rules or you can get like a waiver or if you just build it kind of over in the corner, nobody will notice it. And that's not how government works. Government is designed designed to not change very quickly and to be very risk averse. And so my advice always when people are coming into a government situation is you have to understand the real rules. Like, why is this the way that it is? And how can you change the fundamental rule or law or form behind it? Because that's how you make real lasting change. Your kind of innovation that you stick on the side, what'd you say, like a sunroom? Yeah. Um, they'll just bulldoze, like there's a, there's a full bulldozer fleet that is designed to look for sunrooms and bulldoze them. No kidding. So is this in some way similar to how people get told to care for themselves with diabetes? Like the, you're standing in front of a doctor who's, I don't know, 60 years old and somehow his sweet spot in diabetes was 1986. And because there are still some people who get diagnosed and they're like, they're, they're, they're on sliding scale. Like that actually happens still. And, and oh, I hear about that. Or they're, they're told like the right balance is 50% bolus, 50% basal, independent of what they eat or what their basal doesn't rate matter is. yet. No one ever discusses that their carb ratio um, might have something to do with the glycemic index or load of their food. Like nothing like that. Like, like those ideas. So you, you get, you end up getting that doctor. Right. And then he starts you or she starts you in 1984 with your diabetes. And then there's no one there to to do anything about it. So that's just the path you're on. And isn't that sort of is that kind of bureaucracy, too? Like, like at some point, shouldn't every doctor in the world just get together, bulldoze the whole thing and start over again? Yeah, I think it is bureaucracy. And then you think about like, how do you fix that, right? Because at some point that doctor got licensed and is allowed to see a bunch of patients and put them on a sliding scale today, right? So like what framework has allowed that to happen? And then you look at other things like our whole healthcare system, why is type two diabetes exploding and people are getting worse and worse? You know, the VA spends more now on amputations due to diabetes than to combat wounds, which should make someone raise an eyebrow. Like, but we keep using the same old advice of like, we'll just have another SGL2 inhibitor. Um, and I think we need to fundamentally rethink how we're treating diabetes type one and type two uh, mm. as a country we, we, or I maybe think, a world. Well, I think we just experienced, I think this is something that people don't say out loud over the last year and, it, you know, but I don't think I mind because it seems to me to make perfect sense. But throughout COVID, no one ever was like, hey, if you were healthier, you might not get as sick if you get sick. Like we, we never say that to people like we never, like that's, it's always, it's always, like you said, like something bad's definitely going to happen to you and we'll see if we can't stop it from killing you. Like that always seems to be the way we do things instead of getting in front of them. I know that's a very simple idea that is pretty obvious to people, but we never talk about it like that, like prevention, I guess. I wish we talked about prevention a lot more and then looked upstream. Like, I think it's wildly unfair to blame individual people for their own health outcomes. Mm. And we have to consider like the environment that they're in. So if we have corn subsidies that make 
cheap processed food that are worse for your blood sugar, cheaper and easier to access than other healthier food. If we limit what you can get on food stamps, if we don't allow food delivery for healthy food, but we allow it for, you know, super processed food, the contents of school lunch menus, the contents of hospital meals, frankly, um, I had my appendix out last May in the hospital and the nurse just straight up told me there was nothing on the menu that I could eat as a diabetic. Uh And I was like, well, okay. Um, You know, we need to change those sorts of environmental variables for people. I'm thrilled you said that because that is exactly how I feel and, and would have been the rest of what I said, which is you can't it, it, you listen, you can't take a baby and lock it in a room with a bag of heroin and a bunch of needles and cocaine in that corner and, you know, uh, 13 pot plants and some psychedelic mushrooms over here. And then later go, I can't believe you couldn't avoid drugs. Like it's, it's, it really is what we do with food and a lot of other things too. It's just, you know, I spend most of my time discussing on the podcast how to manage insulin and how you can use insulin to, you know, combat spikes and prolonged highs and things like that. And I am totally not a person who tells people how to eat. I don't care how you eat. Um, my daughter eats what I would consider a fairly American, you know, lifestyle. Uh, so it's not like we're over here counting macros and, you know, telling everybody else it's going great, you know, and I'm having chicken too, like it, you know, or fried chicken too. Um, so I don't, I don't care how people eat. I I think it's up to you. And then I, I just want you to know how to use your insulin after that. But fundamentally, most people don't seem to understand that processed food or foods that aren't real are really difficult for their bodies to process and to get out the other end without it leaving on you poor health outcomes, weight you don't want, et cetera. Um, and that's, I don't know if that's education or if it's opportunity or if it's not a little bit of both. It sounds like you think it's a little bit of both, right? Uh, yeah, I yeah. definitely think like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of government incentives, there's subsidies, there's thinking about like how dietitians are trained, what does my plate look like? And then you're right, like what are our, the standards of care for diabetes and how do we update those given today's faster insulins, CGMs, and knowing what we know about standard deviation, which is a number you couldn't even calculate when I was diagnosed. Yeah, And now that's a number I keep, you know, very close eye on. So, so let me ask you a question because this is your, I didn't expect any of this to go like this. Oh, I'm having a good time. Um, so it is my, I have like a, I have a, a macro goal and a micro goal for the podcast. So every day I just try to put out good content that I think people will enjoy that will help them live with type one diabetes better in some way. And my pullback goal is that I want this idea of being flexible with your insulin, uh, being aggressive, not, you know, abiding by high blood sugars, not staring at 300s for six hours going, hey, it'll come down. Like, you know, stuff like that to become so the norm that it's how people are taught. But I, I, I can't really affect that from here. I mean, I can, but I can't reach enough people to make it happen. So my question is, if I took you and made a, you know, another job where you were in charge of that, how would you impact the healthcare system to talk to people specifically about diabetes in a more proactive prevention way? Have you thought I of this? Would, I have a very specific wonky answer for you, which is I would change the way that Medicare Advantage star ratings work. Can I explain that? Do you- Please. Okay. So right now, um, Medicare Advantage is a kind of Medicare where the federal government pays an insurance company, a certain amount of money every month for you, Scott. Mm -hmm. And they're going to pay that amount of money no matter what happens to you that month. 
So your insurance company, the idea is, is now incentivized to keep you healthier because if they can um, get you fresh produce, drive you to the doctor, make sure you're refilling all your prescriptions on time, um, then you're less likely to be hospitalized that month. And then the insurance company gets to actually pocket that amount of money that month that they receive for you instead of going in debt, sending you to the hospital with ambulance rides and surgery and, and whatnot. Okay. Um, and right now, Medicare Advantage has a lot of um, diabetes-related measures, and it gives doctors more money per, per patient per month the more of these measures that they hit. And the measures include making sure everyone's diabetes is on cholesterol medication. No matter what else, just if you have diabetes, you're on cholesterol medication. Making sure everyone is on high blood pressure medication. Making sure A1C is under eight. Um, things like that. Uh, and I would really like, look, this is the heart of like payment and healthcare in America. How can we change those measures so that they're more aligned with your actual healthcare outcomes and enjoying a, a successful life with diabetes and not, I mean, I don't know, 8%, I wouldn't feel good at 8%. And that shouldn't be the goal to my mind. And if we want to change the incentives of the healthcare field, we have to change where the money is directed. And is there a way to do that within the system now? Like, or would the system have to be completely revamped to support that? I think if you got um, enough of a coalition to support and you do it incrementally, maybe we could change the Medicare Advantage star rating from an A1C of eight to Mm 7.5. And then we could bump it down a little bit more and give those doctors and those patients more tools like you you provide, Right. right? To help get those numbers more in check. I don't know that a lot of diabetics know how to really address a 300 quickly or know that there's intermuscular injections or know the impact of like glycemic index foods on how they may bolus um, for one food over another. And right. I think there's a lot of these tools that can be taught and people deserve, we can all make our individual health choices, but people deserve to have a full menu of options. Yeah. So I think that the, the least common denominator way that we do a lot of things, um, I think it's lazy and I don't think it's even true. Like I think the, I think the messaging is, and this is the you know the example I frequently use. I think the messaging is if there's 20 kids in a class and three of them are brilliant and 14 of them are average and three of them are struggling, well, we don't want to we don't want to leave the three behind who are struggling. So we'll we'll bring the entire course level down so that they can keep up with it. And in my mind, what that does is it eliminates the idea that the other 17 kids might excel. And so I think we do that with healthcare, but it's around, they do it around safety. They say, well, we can't, you know, we can't tell people how to bolus, you know, aggressively, they'll kill themselves. But that doesn't happen. It's just what people say. It's the, and I think they say it because they don't know how to explain it. And if they say that they can explain it for safety reasons, then they'll never get called out for not really understanding it to begin with. Yeah, I think the risk frameworks are all pretty perverse here. So you have an endocrinologist who is arguably afraid of being sued for your really bad hypoglycemia event, but will never get sued if you have complications from being high. Or even, heck, you failed a test because you were 300 for so long that you had brain fog. But then you meet other health professionals like an ophthalmologist who uh, could look at an A1, your endocrinologist might say, oh, your 6.5 A1C is thumbs up. And your ophthalmologist will look at it like, we got to tighten this up because I want to prevent you from complications, or you talk to an obstetrician for a pregnant diabetic and they're upset at any blood sugar over 100 and it's a totally different framework, but they're, they're risk. They're worried about you and your baby. Um, and so I, I think a lot about how do we align these risk frameworks more that the risk can't just be about 
going low. And there's also steps toward that. Like, I don't suppose you recommend people get super aggressive with insulin tomorrow if they kind of barely understand how it works today. Like there are steps in that direction. You don't start off at the ninja level. You, uh, you, uh, in my mind, it's, you understand what basil's for, you get it set up well, then you start understanding how to pre-bullish your meals. And then you begin to understand the different impacts of foods and then you go from there. You go, you stay flexible. You understand that fat might keep carbs alive in your system longer. You like you start building on it. But in the beginning, in my mind, the core of it is basal, uh, pre-bolusing, glycemic load, and index. If you can get those three ideas right, that's an A1C somewhere in the sixes with very few lows. But you don't, yeah, I don't, but you can't just have your, your, your basal can't need to be 1.5 an hour, but it's actually 0.6. And you usually try to correct the high with two units. Then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to use seven. Like, that's not, it's not what we're talking about. Like there's a, a, there's a balance. And I think it's why it works in podcasting because you don't need to understand it all in one day. And you get to kind of like, listen through it, hear people talk about it and go, and then find what's applicable to you and what isn't, and then set it in place. Now, are there going to be those three kids in the class listening to the podcast who never quite get it? I assume yes. But I pride myself on talking about it in a way that I think everyone can understand it. And I think that's valuable across the board. But I also am just not the kind of person who's willing to let 17 people's health slip because three people might not understand what we're talking about. I don't think that's valuable. And it's like what we were talking about earlier, where like you and I have different personalities with lists, but we find ways to make them work for ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I totally believe that there are some people that love regimen and like an MDI routine, like the same as I, I was on when I was nine or 10, like might work just fine for them today. They like eating the same amount of meal at different times a different day. And they like that regimen. And that's great. Um, there are different people that are super confident, like sugar surfing with like large amount of carbs. And there's lots of space in the middle. And also we have different bodies. I have I am super, super insulin resistant in the morning to the point that I do not eat breakfast. I haven't eaten breakfast for 22 years. Mm. Um, And that works for me. I have coffee, you know, totally happy. Someone else may need breakfast and they absolutely need to find a different way for that to work. And we all have to kind of work, work within those frameworks. Right. So my idea of infiltrating from the outside, the healthcare system isn't really going to work because they're not incentivized to teach people these things. Well, unless you get your listeners that grow up and go to medical school uh, and become doctors, like there's a long game here. So we do have a few people who are becoming nurse practitioners. I have made a couple of uh, CDEs, which they don't call them CDs anymore, but I am not willing to learn the new acronym. So, um, (laughs) but I have a few people who are becoming CDEs. There are a number of people who are, uh, who find this podcast through their doctor's direction. Um, which I think is very progressive and amazing. So you're saying I might have an impact that I don't, I'm not going to get to see is what you're getting at here, right? I think you're definitely having an impact. And it's like, there's a lot of uh, levers in the system. And if you can start influencing other diabetics to even just understand what's possible. um, I think, you know, knowing what is possible, even if you maybe make offset choices for your own lifestyle or activities or whatever. Mm. Um, we should all know that we are entitled to have like normal non-diabetic A1Cs and experience like not having the the roller coaster of, oh my God, I'm crashing low. And then I overtreat it. And oh, now I have brain fog because I'm high and I feel like crap all day. Yeah. Um, you know, we should, we should know that there are ways in a different direction to me. I, and then I, yeah. we all have different ways to get there. And not everybody's going to choose to do that work. And that's, by the way, if that happens, that happens. I don't feel encumbered by 
everyone's health. Um, but you should at least have the opportunity to know that thing exists and make a decision for yourself as to whether or not you want to implement it or not. But you shouldn't be told that your A1C is okay because it hits some arbitrary number that was set by a board of people who don't have diabetes. And that's just how the doctor ends up getting paid by somebody. If your A1C comes in under a number, like that's not health. Like I, I very clearly on the podcast, I I say that most doctors give do not die advice and they give it for the exact reason you brought up earlier, because if you die today, it's their fault. And if you die 12 years from now, it's your fault. And that's what they want. They want the fault to be with you, not with them. Yeah. And we have other numbers, like an A1C is a measure, right? And you and I both know it, but you and I both have enough tools that we could game it if we needed to. Um, and there's other measures that you want to take into account too, like a standard deviation. If you have an A1C of 5.5, but it's because you're at 40 half the time and 200 the other half the time, like, and you're at standard deviation is 60, yep. you know, you're probably way worse off than someone with an A1C right. of 60. You're screwed and the doctor gets paid. And that's, yeah, that's not the way to go. So I noticed you're not in government anymore. <laughs> was it um, exhausting? And was there was there something fulfilling about it that you would, like, could, could someone get you to go back? Um, it was absolutely exhausting. It was also, like, the most impactful, amazing scale of work ever. And uh, I was a political appointee, so I got kicked out uh, with the with President Obama the same day that he left. But I actually work in foster care reform now. So I do, I would say I caught the uh, public sector bug. Um, I'm just uh, in a different part of the organization at the moment. Oh, no kidding. What do you do for that? Um, I, similarly, I work with um, different states doing business process reengineering to help them find family for kids faster and help get those families approved for kids to live with them faster. So the kids get out of homes and into out of like foster home like institutions and get into real into single family homes. Uh, not only that, but the, the goal for me is always if a kid has to be taken away from their parents for health and safety reasons, then they should be placed with an adult that they already know and trust, whether that adult is their grandmother, their baseball coach, their mom, oh, sorry, their friend's mom. Um, and then we should resource that family and that placement so that it stays together so that a kid, if they do have to enter foster care, doesn't have to move around a bunch. What happens today is, you know, you're taken, you're placed in a home that is generally a very poor match with strangers, and then you move 17 more times, and then we act confused why you're acting out and you're not doing well in school. Do kids become commodities in that system because the people who take them in are paid to have them? I have seen a lot less of that, but you do have to keep in mind that like at a group homes, there is a huge financial incentive for group homes to be full, um, and they there is a lot of money to be made in a group home environment. I think there's a lot of wiggle room in the middle. Like we need to acknowledge, like there's so much stigma from, you know, little orphan Annie around paying a foster parent anything, Mm -hmm. but we need to acknowledge that if we don't have any in-between space, then the choices are just you're in a foster, in a traditional foster home where they only get reimbursed for your kind of food and clothing, or you're in a group home where we're paying a full-time staff to take care of you. And there's definitely some middle ground where we could pay an experienced foster parent to help a child with a higher level of needs, but stay in a home environment. Okay. Is the, is the concern that when you pay, then some people take advantage of the system, but isn't that usually far fewer than who are actually doing good with the, the way it works? It is the concern. And I would say it's far and away. It's people that are doing good, good work. Um, and they're really, really sticking their necks out for these kids. I mean, nobody is getting, no individual foster parent is getting rich. If you look at the foster parent rates, right. um, it's barely covering the cost of a kid's uh, shoes and clothes. 
if you put them with people that they know previously, does that statistically make them more likely to stay together as a unit long term? Astronomically, yes. And astronomically better outcomes in terms of high school graduation, um, not being pregnant or not, you know, parenting before they're ready, um, finishing college, um, getting education, uh, employment, um, making the same amount as their peers. I mean, the the outcomes for foster kids are just abysmal right now. Mm. What, um, where's my question? I had a question. Oh, uh, once a child's removed from their natural parents, what's the likelihood that they'll go back? And is it usually a good situation? Or it's I- about 50, 50 likelihood that they'll be reuni- reunified. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of hoops that parents have to jump through to get their kids back a lot of hoops. So um, while some kids do come back into care, um, I would say that there's a lot of focus on reunification. And to make those successful, a lot of our focus needs to be on wrapping around supports around those birth families. Like a story I tell all the time is we very regularly take uh, you know, a mom or a dad, they can't afford daycare. They're working really hard. They leave their kid home alone because they don't have the money for daycare. Some neighbor calls in a neglect report because the kids have been left home alone. Mm -hmm. We remove the kid. We create tremendous trauma to this family. We place them with strangers and then we give those strangers money for daycare. Yeah. You could have given the parents the money for the daycare. Yeah. We could have uh, put daycare in originally and and kept a family together. When I don't want to be cynical, but when people don't get through the reunification process, is it sometimes because they're, I don't want to say happier, but I guess happier is the word. Are they happier that the kid's not with them anymore? Does that happen? I wouldn't say that. I would okay. say some people have deep struggles with drug addiction and with mental health challenges that as a society, we are not doing a great job of helping them remediate. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of people try. What I see are birth parents trying and trying and trying and jumping through tremendous hoops to get their kids back. How do you help? So it's just very interesting that you that you said mental health and and drugs is like your example. So, is are those two things drivers behind problems in a lot of sectors of society? Um, I that you've seen. Um, I work in veterans and I work in child welfare. I would say, like in those two spaces, like they can be very problematic. And can you help people when they're in those scenarios? Like that that's the, always the like I know you the goal would be to, and that you would want to, and I would want to, if you put me in charge, if you magic wand me, I was like, I'd definitely be like, I'm going to help these people. But I've also interviewed people who are um, bipolar, for example, and you're talking to them one moment and everything's right. And then you talk to them three days later and you're like, well, that's not the same person I spoke to three days ago. And I don't know, like, how do you, how do you help people in that, in those scenarios? When they're gripped by something other than themselves, I guess, if whether it's a mental illness or if it's drugs, something that's outside of their control, I guess. I don't know if I'm using the right word or not, but that's how it feels. It feels like an outside driver to me. I think there are a lot of successful treatments for for mental health and for drug um, addiction challenges, but we need to make them available to people and we need to make them available to people where they are. And I actually mean that quite literally in the sense that if if I say you know, okay, I've taken Arden from you and to get her back, you need to go to therapy four times a week. Therapy is two and a half hours away from you. Um, and you can only get there by bus and I'm not giving you a bus pass. Um, and then I also, by the way, need you to visit her every day uh, in order to count for court visitation. And then I also need you to get stable employment and stable housing. And I'm not going to help you with any of those things. Go while you're already struggling, potentially, you know, 
presumably deeply struggling if you've had your children removed. Like there's even missing things about like how many providers are at bus stops. Like we don't know that that isn't tracked. And that might seem like a very, very basic thing. Do we send reminders to birth parents about court dates? You know, like they may not have a a Google calendar like yours and mine that is so full that, you know, we're we're getting alerts every five minutes. And we, I think we really could do a much, much better job as a system of helping parents to succeed and not set them up for failure. Is a, is a big part of helping people not judging them? I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to give everybody like a really fair chance at succeeding. And you have to really recognize that not everyone is starting from the same point on the course. I have to imagine too, you have to not apply your judgment of success to their lives as well. Like, like if, if well, I don't, I just, I'm not sure what I mean here, but there seems like there's a whole section of, um, of our culture who wants everything to be perfect for everybody. And which is a lovely idea, except that when it, something could be perfect for another person, then it might not be perfect to you. Um, is there, is there a problem there where we're trying to get people to something that they're just unaware that even exists or couldn't get to, even if they knew it was there? Does that make sense? Yeah. I understand where you're going. I would yeah. say it's less that they can't get there. And it's more that there are different standards uh, for communities and for families in different places. And it's wildly unfair and judgmental to hold everybody to one standard. Mm-hmm. Like as a quick example, many states require um, foster parents to include like grandmas or aunties that are taking you in to have recycling, to have a working oven and stovetop, to have the right quote unquote number of windows um, in your bedroom, which fits for you know a standard colonial home but a Native American, I live in a colonial style home, mm-hmm. um, but for a Native American long home, they have the quote wrong number of windows in their bedrooms. And when you just have a lens that the whole world looks like my world, you miss those things. And then you start you know, traumatizing and separating families because you're not there understanding that they have different and perfectly acceptable homes. They just are shaped a little bit differently. Is the windows thing for egress during fires and other emergencies? Is that what that's yeah. for? Yep. I couldn't imagine any other reason. Like that's the only thing that popped into my head. So, so then this thing that we're talking, this big idea around foster care. And if you switch real quick and talk about, you know, healthcare or diabetes care, it is all really arbitrary rules that have been slapped on top of other things because at some point, because at some point some kid died in a fire, right? And the fire was on one side. This is like when I rented my first apartment with my wife, we were signing the contract and it said explicitly on the contract that you could not swim in the pool with an open wound. And that made me, and that made me look at the woman and I said, how many people try to swim in the pool with open wounds? Because my brain said, if it's in the contract, it's a problem. It's something they've come up with before. She goes, oh, it's happened a number of times. And I laughed because I thought it was funny, except that. There's some kid who doesn't get placed in what would be a good foster system because 20 years ago there was a fire on the east wall and that was the only window in that room. That's the truth, right? Correct. Yes. And we really need to rethink fundamentally what these rules are and how we can make them more flexible. The goal is that you can escape from a bedroom in an emergency. I'm okay with that goal, Mm -hmm. but I'm not okay with counting the number of windows. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know if I've said this before uh, on here. I'm sure I have at some point, but there's this little parable about a girl making a pot roast with her mom 
and the mom. I love the one from Reader's Digest. I tell people it right, all the time. Right. Yeah. I, I just, I think it's, it's so insightful and it's, it's what I use around diabetes to tell people like, there's no way to do something. I know you think there's a rule because you heard somebody say it and then you went on Facebook and somebody said, oh, that's what my doctor said too. And then you're like, oh, I heard it one place and her doctor said it, obviously a rule. I wish people understood the freedom that I have in the way my brain works. I am not encumbered by what any person who came before me thought. And I think, you know, we could dig into that. I, I grew up adopted and uh, I was brought up in a, in a lovely home with wonderful people, but I may have been a little, um, I may have been a little more intellectually strong than they were. So I was always figuring out my own things, but more importantly, I was never relying on what they said to me to figure things out. I was always looking for my own answers and I just am such a big fan of looking for your own answers. Um, and, uh, and this just seems like what we talk about all the time. There are people, look at you, you're out there. Like there's somebody out there right now going, I have a 73A1C. I'm winning because somebody said a number for reasons you brought up earlier. And meanwhile, a 73A1C is terrific, but there's more room under that and a way to get to it. And no one's ever going to tell it to you. Yeah. My, I'm not here saying anyone with a 73A1C, you know, sucks or is bad. I'm saying that I want them to know that there are other tools out there that they could leverage that don't mean they have to give up, you know, their life or they have to like follow a clock. There's ways they can do it that work with their lifestyle. That's exactly how I feel. And this whole, the last five or six minutes of this conversation have made me angry, not at you. Um, But can you imagine if I was like, I'm mad at you. Uh, But just that whole idea that arbitrary nature of things is is bothersome to me. Um, w- that we have rules we follow for reasons that don't even exist anymore, or maybe we're never good reasons to begin with, or just stop gaps for somebody. I really want people to think about that. Like, how many things do you do in the course of a day that are senseless, and they seem utterly like they're the most important thing that ever happened? Oh my gosh! So how do you? Okay, so now you you recognize that, and I don't know what you do. Like, I don't understand how to fix anything. Doesn't it feel like we're just building shit on top of shit? Like, like, how do you, how do you start fresh with things? It's definitely frustrating. And I think it does this sort of stuff. It's one person at a time and, and helping one person learn that, oh, that is a tool that could work for me. Or that person sounds like me. Um, I could learn from what they're doing. And just again, knowing that there's Hope. I think I spent a long time having diabetes thinking that 6.5 was like the holy grail and you couldn't do any better. Mm-hmm. And I'm really grateful to know differently now. Um, and I, I want other people to know that too. Yeah. No kidding. Well, I, I how did I not have you on sooner? What, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, I only know you by your little picture. Like when someone, like when somebody said your name to me, I was like, I don't know who that is. And then as soon as I looked for you, I was like, I know that face. Isn't it weird <laughs> how <laughs> social media works? I'm like, no, hey. That person I'm aware of. <laughs> and then I look into what you do and I'm like, but I don't know about any of this. So how did what you were on another podcast, right? But you weren't talking about diabetes. You just brought it up at the end. Is that what happened? Yeah, it was a a, to- a podcast called People I Mostly Admire from the Freakonomics team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were talking about sort of my career path around the federal government. And then uh, Steve interviewed me a little bit about uh, type one diabetes and my experience that with that. Isn't it weird how the, and then someone who listens to this podcast, a number of someone's listened to this podcast, heard you on that. 
And I got immediate notes. Please have this person on your podcast. And I was like, I don't know. I'm on it. Like, I'm like, geez, I felt very pressured. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, when the third email came, I was like, I'm, I'll do it. I'll, okay. And you were well, that was very you, kind of those people. Well, and you were very nice to answer back so quickly because I have to admit, like, once I found you, I was like, she's not going to answer me. <laughs> you have the most famous diabetes podcast. Why would I not write back? I don't know. I feel so, I, um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I didn't grow up up with a ton of self-confidence as a child, I guess is the real answer. Um, But uh, no, I was so thrilled. Like, and you don't ever want to like, it's a weird note to send. You don't say, Hey, by the way, I'm here. Here are my, you know, like, but you have to sometimes there are people I've gotten on this show by sending them the downloads to the show. And it's the only way you can get them because they're more sought after and they, you know, you didn't do that, but, um, but they're sought after and they don't waste their time. They don't, they don't do things that nobody hears, you know, which makes complete sense. Um, this was really good. Did I not bring up anything that I should have? Um, I don't, it's your show. I I feel feel (laughs) good. You're not holding anything inside right now. You're like, I can't believe you didn't lead me to this point. Nope. Thank you so much for doing this. I don't remember where I heard the pot roast story or whatever it's called initially, but I did write about it in my 2013 book titled Life is Short, Laundry is Eternal, Confessions of a Stay-at-Home Dad. And I'd like to read that passage to you here. When I first became a stay-at-home dad, I thought about certain tasks that I was performing in very gender-specific ways. Eventually, my new life helped me to understand that there is no such thing as a woman's or man's task when it comes to raising family, only parental responsibility. This topic reminds me very much of an old anecdote about pot roast that I've heard and told over the years. I can't remember where I first heard it, but it makes the point that you should question what you know. The story goes that while preparing dinner one evening, a mother cuts the ends off of a pot roast she's about to put in the oven. Her daughter sees the cuts made and asks the mother why she removes the ends of the roasts. The mother thinks for a moment, but doesn't know why she always makes those cuts. She tells her daughter that if she wants to find out, she should call her grandmother and ask her, since she is the one who taught her mother. The method. The girl calls the grandmother, but she doesn't know either, responding only that she did so because her mother did. Still not satisfied, the girl contacts her great-grandmother by phone to get the answer for which she is so desperately searching. The woman answers the phone. She is old and weary and has to think for a few minutes before she can recall the answer to the girl's question. Suddenly, the great-grandmother remembers why she cut the ends from all of those pot roasts so many years ago and says, oh, that's right, I cut them off because my pan was so short that they didn't fit. So whether you're a bureaucrat making up rules as to who can serve as a foster parent, or a doctor telling people how to bolus for their food, or anything in between, you really should stop once in a while and ask yourself, why do I say the things that I say? Is there really a reason, or am I just repeating something that I heard someone else say? A huge thank you to one of today's sponsors, Gvoke Glucagon. Find out more about Gvoke Hypopen at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. You spell that G-V-O-K-E-G-L-U-C-A-G-O-N.com forward slash juice box. Thanks also to the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter. 
Learn more at contournext.com forward slash juice box. You may be eligible for a free meter. You are going to want to look into the test strip savings program. You want to find out about the most accurate blood glucose meter I've ever seen. It's not just accurate. It's super easy to hold, super easy to use. It fits well into your life. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe or follow in the podcast player that you're listening in right now. If you're listening online, please consider listening in a podcast player. They are free and very handy. But last, if you're enjoying the show, share it with someone who you think will enjoy it as well. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Find Marina at marinanitsu.com, M-A-R-I-N-A-N-I-T-Z-E.com. And her app, Task Tackler, is available at tasktackler.com.